Isaiah's one of those books, isn't it, that people are like, oh yeah, the book of Isaiah is amazing. And then you start reading it and you're like, oh, there's lots of judgment here. Uh, and um, I was just studying this week, reading some of it and looking through some of it. And, and something that um, I think I'd heard years ago and I'd forgotten about and, and I saw it and I was like, oh, that is Awesome. Uh, I just wanted to share it with you guys. Um, so Isaiah is like a perfect uh, microcosm of the entire Bible, right? 66 chapters in Isaiah, 66 books in the Bible. Chapters 1 to 39 perfectly mirror the, chapter, uh, the books 1 to 39 in the Old Testament. They're about the law. They're about judgment. They're about how you live and the things that people have got. It's all about like, oh, this feels like Old Testament. Then chapters 40 to 66, they're like 27 chapters that kind of mirror the New Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. And they're all about the, the, the hope of the Messiah, the servant, the arm of the Lord, the chosen one who's going to bring about something new and restore the kingdom of heaven. And you're like, boom. And I, I was like, oh, I love that. And I particularly love that because we're now in the last part of Isaiah, right? And we're like, here's the hope, come on. Um, And and so this is where we're at. We're at this turning point. We're looking today. Last week, we kind of went from 9 to 35, and we covered some of the judgment stuff. And this week, we're looking at chapter 40 to 66. We're not going to read it all. Don't worry. Um, I'm not going to do a verse-by-verse study of it. Uh, Okay, we don't have that kind of time. Um, So, um, but I... I love it. Turn, turn to, turn, if you've got a Bible with you, turn to Isaiah chapter 40. You'll get it up on your phone or, or an old school paper copy, which I still love. <laughs> um, and I, I love Isaiah chapter 40 just kicks off and it says, comfort, comfort my people. And you're like, yeah, those are words. I've just, oh, there I am. Those are words we need to hear. And, and, and you think, Oh, we've just come through all this judgment stuff, and we talked a lot about that last week, so I'm not going to go over that again. Um, but yeah, comfort. How many of us need to hear words of comfort so often, right? Like, yes. Yes, we do. I think we live in a time where we are bombarded with things, where we're beaten down, where we're constantly striving, and we need to hear words of comfort. And suddenly Isaiah is told to comfort my people. Um, I, I want to read verses 3 to 5. Okay, it says this. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places are plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Uh, Jump down to verse 28. I just want to read verses 28 to 31. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Boom. 
What, what a chapter. What an encouragement. What amazing verses. What amazing verses. Into the wilderness speak hope. Hope is coming. Hope is coming. Make way for the Lord. This is what Isaiah is told to do. Go out into the wilderness and tell the wilderness that God is coming. Tell the desert that there is hope. I love that. Tell the dry places. Tell the cracked places. Tell the difficult places that there is hope because God is coming. I I think this is a verse that or a chapter that we need to hear. I think this is a chapter that our world needs to hear. I think people all around the globe need to hear this, that there is hope. And I think that because I don't think that the wilderness was just some remote wilderness out in Israel or in that part of the world that Isaiah went out into physically. Yes, I think it was. But I think that we live in the wilderness now. I think that we live in the wilderness today. I think that we need to hear that we need hope. We need hope hope. Our world needs hope. Um, Turn with me to Isaiah 41. Why do we need hope? Let me read you a few verses. Let's let's read verse 6 to 7 to start with. Um, I'm just going to read the last bit, so uh, verse 5. They approach and come forward. This is talking about the nations, okay? It says, they help each other and they say to their companions, be strong! So the metal metal worker encourages the goldsmith, and the uh, the one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. And the one, uh, and one says, sorry, one says of the welding, it's good, it's good. The other nails down the idol so it will not topple. You spot this? This is talking about the peoples of the world coming together and encouraging each other. What you're doing is good, keep going, keep going. Oh, that looks great. And then suddenly another one comes along and says, yeah, that looks really great, but let me nail it down because it's going to topple over, right? Do you get this? This is, this is what's happening in the world. Things are going on in the world where we constantly need to reaffirm each other. We constantly need to reaffirm the things the world is offering us. We need to nail them into the ground because things the world keeps offering, they, they just topple over. There's nothing in them, no root to them, no strength to it. This is what this is talking about here. These people that, that made idols and they're encouraging each other. The Bible tells us that idols are nothing but metal and wood, right? Physically, back in that day, they literally had little idols, just metal and wood. And they thought that gods dwelt in them. They thought that hope were in these little bits of, of wood. Um, Emma was mentioning earlier, uh, a verse uh, in, in Isaiah where it says, hey, with, with the wood that they chop down, they, they burn it and cook their food. And the little bit that's left over, they turn it into gods and say, this is our God. It will save us. Like, it's just a piece of wood. You just burnt it to cook food over it. Uh, but they gather around each other and they say, yeah, keep going. Let me encourage you in, in that emptiness that you're pressing into. It's good. It's good. It's good. Keep going. Look at um, verse 22 um, to 24. Talking about the idols, God says this, tell us, you idols, what is going to happen? Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. 
we think of idols in our minds and we think of these little like wooden statues or kind of like golden kind of statues or whatever that they used to carry around with them and like pull out and put, set them up in their homes and worship and light candles in front of. Uh, but I'm telling you that idols still exist today. Idols still exist today. They're not all made with wood or metal. Some of them are. The idol phone. <laughs> so, some of them are made with wood and metal, but not all of them, right? Not all of them. They're made of lots of different things. Idols are anything anything that has power and authority, rule and reign in our life, anything that speaks into our life that we believe will give us hope over and above Jesus, anything like that is an idol. Anything that we look to to fill our lives that actually is just an empty nothing that doesn't fill our lives, that ultimately it promises so much at the beginning, but at the end it just topples over. And we have to constantly keep nailing them into the ground to hold them up. We have to constantly keep encouraging each other and say, yeah, that's good, keep going, keep going. Because otherwise they topple down. They, they lose their power in our lives. And I think, man, when I look around our world, there are so many, so many things that again and again and again we have to keep propping up because they fall over. But we need them to be propped up because we keep looking to them for hope, for strength, for peace, for joy, for encouragement. For life, we look to these things. I, I, there are so, so many. I was thinking about things that have got authority in our lives that we have to keep propping up. Um, and I was thinking about things like um, the government. I like chuckling, I love it. Uh, the, the government. Governments are good. Hear me. Wood to burn to cook food over is good. But then when you use it for the wrong thing, it becomes bad, right? It's no use. It doesn't do anything. And governments, governments can be good. They can be great. They can provide stability and peace and, and hope for the future when they are in kind of the right order and used in the right way. But how often do governments fail? I mean, I'm only 38 and, and I feel like I've seen so many cycles of different parties in power. And at the beginning, they're all really good. Like, yeah, this is the one. And then they get in, and, and every single one of them, I don't care who you vote for, right? Every single one of them fails. Every single one of them falls flat. Every single one of them overpromises and never achieves. Like, all of them. I don't care who you vote for. I think that's true. I think it's true of the party that I vote for. I think that's, that's true all the time. Governments fail us. They topple. And we have to keep propping them up. Man, go on social media at the moment, and like, or when an election comes around, and seriously, like, the shouting on social media, like, this is good, I'm propping this up, I'm nailing this into the ground, because we all know that eventually it's going to topple over, right? Like, but we have to keep propping it up. Think, things like that. Um, uh, the ideologies within our culture right now, and uh, I want to offend anyone, but take the trans ideology right now. This is good. This, this, this journey, they're saying, this journey to discover who you really are. This is it. We should go on it. This is fantastic. Every person should be doing this. I want to tell you that I think the journey of discovering who you are is a really good journey to go on. But the trans ideology that exists within our culture right now, not good. And people are having to over-encourage uh, over it, to over-defend to it. To, to prop it up, to nail it into the ground, because if you, if you just leave it there for a little while, it, it topples. <laughs> but people have to keep saying, no, no, it's good, it's good, it's good. We're, we're forcing it out there. We're going to teach it to children. We're going to push it on all these places because they need it to be out there. Because they're so desperate to have hope. So they're propping up this idol, this ideology. 
um, technologies. I'll hold up my iPhone a moment ago, um, but Em and I just bought new laptops. Um, it was one of those things where if one of us got one, the other one had to get one, you know, if it's a marriage. <laughs> but but uh, it was great. But, but Em used to have uh, an iMac. I've always been a Windows boy, but Em liked her. her um, I'm gutted they stopped making the Windows phone, like the, the old Lumia. Anyway, side note. But, so I'm on an iPhone, sadly. But hey, I do everything I can to make it function like a Windows phone. But anyway, um, <laughs> but, but Em, I, Em's an, a, a, an Apple user, right? And, and they're great. She does lots of like photography and editing and all that kind of thing. They're good for that kind of thing. The problem is, is, is you buy it and it's like shiny and it's like, woo, it's this great thing that you need, you must have. It will do everything you want it to do. And then in two years time, it won't anymore because you can't actually update it anymore. It's out of date and you have to buy the next one. You, you know that? We have to constantly keep investing in it. We have to constantly keep moving on. They fail us. Nothing lasts. Nothing can speak into the future or declare what has happened. They, they fail. Technologies fail us all the time. The, the latest fads. There are so many fads, aren't there? Um, uh, fitness, I think, is, is a fad. And hear me again. I think that, that healthy living and fitness is a good thing to be invested in. Em and I are trying to calorie count right now. I'm trying to lose a little bit of weight um, and just get healthy because I'm not overly healthy all the time. You all know that I love McDonald's. Um, 439 calories in a Big Mac. Um, but anyway, like, so, but, but, but I think you can go over the top, right? You can, you, can literally, you can literally get so invested in it that it becomes a bad thing. I was reading in the news a couple of weeks ago about a bodybuilder in his 30s, so obsessed with his bodybuilding, and he died. Overly healthy to the point of ruining his body. Uh, and, and these things, there is goodness. The wood is good for cooking on the fire, but when you take it and make an idol out of it, it is not good. It is not good. And, and these things, they, they topple in full. Um, turn with me to verse 25 in um, chapter 42. So, so God speaks into this, right? And, and he speaks to people that are turning to idols. He speaks to people that are turning to idols. And he, he says a whole load of things. But here's uh, how this chapter kind of ends. It says this. So he, God, poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. Flick your Bibles to, to the other end of the Bible and go to, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read a chunk from here, if that's all right. We're going to read verses 21 to 25. It says this. <clears throat> For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchange, uh, sorry, therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Guys, I think that verse in Isaiah mirrors that, that, that chunk in, in Romans 1. God says, I want to give you life. I want to give you hope. 
I want to fill your life with joy and with peace. I want you to live the fullness of life. That's what Jesus says he came for in John 10, 10. But here's the thing. If you insist on taking created things, if you insist on taking these things and making idols out of them and looking to them for your hope, I'm, I'm going to let you choose that because I'm not a God that forces you into relationship with me. I'm going to let you choose whatever you you want to choose. You choose to live the way you want to live. But my heart for you is that you would choose me. My heart for you is that you would step into life and the fullness of life that I want for you. Uh, But I'm, I'm going to let you choose what you want. But you need to be aware of this. If I give you over to this, if you choose this, if you choose these idols, if you choose these other ways and you exchange the life and the wisdom and, and, and the hope that I want to give you for these lifeless things, then what is going to happen is war. Is war. And, 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 I, and I think physical wars happen in our world, and maybe this will lose that, but I'm, I'm not talking about that right now. I think that, that when we choose to follow idols and God says, okay, you go that way, what we end up with is like Isaiah 42 verse 25, we end up being given over to war. And these things inflict war upon us. They inflict war upon our bodies. They inflict war upon our communities. They inflict war uh, upon our families. They inflict war upon our peace and our joy and our hope. These things inflict war upon us, and they kill off the life and the hope and the joy within us. Some of the ideologies uh, that people are worshipping right now are actually committing war upon humanity. They're committing war upon what it means to be human made in the image of God. They are literally tearing down our communities. They're destroying family. These things are happening. These things are happening. And, 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 and this is why we need hope. This is why we need hope. Because we live in this wilderness. We live in this wilderness. We live in this desert place. This time, this society, this culture that we live in is a wilderness and a desert place. And we need hope. And praise God, that is the message of Isaiah. So we get from Isaiah 40 and 41 that tells us about these things into Isaiah 42. So turn, turn with me there and look at this. Right at the start of Isaiah 42, God says this. Here is my servant whom I uphold. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will pour uh, my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He'll bring justice to the nations. This servant, this, this God, this one is different to all the others. Okay, look at this, verse 2. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. I love this. Because when I look at the idols in our world right now, what are they doing? Shouting out raising their voices in the streets. Look at me, choose me, follow me, give everything for me. This is the way. Social media, in conversations, in the news, they are shouting out and raising their voices because that's the only thing that these things can do to draw your attention. They've got no real power, so they need to have a loud voice. They need to have a loud voice. And so they do have these loud voices to draw us. But here we see that the servant of the Lord, the one who will bring true justice to the nations, he won't shout out, he won't cry out, He won't raise his voice in the streets. He is different to these others. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. I love that verse. 
I love that verse because so many of us are bruised. So many of us are bruised reeds. And we need a Savior who will hold us up, a Savior who will love us, a Savior who will pour life into us, not suck life out of us and demand from us like some of the idols do in our world. A bruised reed he will not break. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. I want to say this boldly and clearly. If ever there was a time that we needed to put our hope in the teaching of Jesus, it is now. There are so many teachings out there, so many voices out there, so many, even Christian churches out there that are teaching a false gospel that are not teaching the truth about Jesus. And we need to come back to the teachings of Jesus. Listen, anything I ever say to you here, do not just take my word for it. Do not walk out of here and say, yeah, but Matt said, Matt said, Matt said. No, no, no. Go and look in the Bible for yourself and see what the scriptures say. See what God says. See what the word of God says. And when you're talking with people, God has said, not Matt has said, not Reverend this or person this or Professor that, but the Bible has said, the everlasting God who is from beginning to end, the one who we can put our hope in, who does not fail and does not fade, we need to come back to his teaching, back to his word, because that is where there is hope. That is where there is hope. Look at this. I I love this. Verse 6, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Man, I have read over this verse so many times. And when I read it this week, something just smacked me in the face. And I was like, how did I not see that before? Do you notice that it says, it's talking about the servant, okay? And and this is, we're going to get onto this in a moment. This is Jesus, okay, that's been spoken about here. Okay, the servant of the Lord, the arm of the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior, the root that Isaiah talks about. This is who he's talking about. And he says of him, he says of him, I will make you to be a covenant. Do you spot that? Not I will make you to form a covenant or I will make you to create a covenant, but I will make you to be the covenant. You will actually be it. And I was like, man, Wow. When you make a covenant in the Old Testament, the way it worked was like this. You took an animal, you chopped it in half, you put the parts on either side, and the blood poured down into this little ditch, and you walked through the blood with the person you were making a covenant with. That's how you made a covenant with someone. But here the servant isn't just making a covenant with us. He is going to be the covenant. His body is going to be broken. His blood is going to be spilled, and he will be the covenant. Wow. He's not just making one for us, he's being it. And and I thought, man, this so contrasts the things that the world wants us to buy into, right? Because the world says, hey, if you come and do this, if you sign up with me, if you do this with me, if you buy this thing, then, then I promise you that these things will happen. We'll give you this, you'll become like that, you'll grow to be this, this will happen in your life. It says, let us make a covenant. Let, us, let me make you a promise. Let me make a covenant for you. But Jesus doesn't say, let me make a covenant for you. He says, let me be the covenant for you. Let my body be broken, that you might have my blood wash over you, so that you might have a relationship with God, that you might step into my place as the Son of God. Wow. It's not an empty promise, because he himself fulfills the promise. He makes it happen, and he gave himself for it. Oh. So, so I've kind of already given the next point away, but who is the servant? It's Jesus, right? And um, 
Uh, if you turn to Isaiah 41, verse 8, um, people kind of debate around this. So you'll see here it says this uh, in verse 8. It says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. So the Bible seems to say that Israel is the servant. Right? Israel is the servant. But I'm telling you that Jacob is the servant. You're like, well, Matt, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says Israel is the servant. So let's, let's keep looking at this, right? Who is this actual servant? Well, in chapter 42, in verse 18 and 19, it says this. I'm not a big fan of the, um, the titles in the Bible, but if you've got an NIV like me, it probably says Israel, blind and deaf, above, above this section, right? So but that's helpful in this situation. <laughs> But, uh, so we know what's going on here. So in verse 18, it says, Hear you deaf, look you blind and see. Who is blind but my servant and deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one in covenant with me, blind like the servant of the Lord? Here's the thing. Israel was God's servant. But then there was a problem. They became like all the other blind and deaf people. And the blind can't lead the blind. Right? <laughs> there was a problem. Israel was God's servant. But they turned to idols and they became blind and they gave up their right to be God's servant. And so in, in chapter 42, verse 1, where he says, here is my servant, there's a pivot point. There's a change. There's, oh, there's something different going on here. There's a new servant being raised up. And, and we could go through and look at countless verses in Isaiah. But here's what you see as you start looking through Isaiah. You start discovering this, that God himself was going to become the servant. God himself was going to become the servant. He was going to step in where Israel failed. He was going to do what Israel was supposed to do. He's going to become the one that will lead the blind, that will give hope. He was going to become the servant because the people that he'd chosen to be his servant had failed. And so Isaiah tells us again and again that God would be their savior, that God would be their redeemer. He would come and he would do it. Um, are you guys with me so far? Yeah, great. We're going to start to descend here, okay, and make our final approach. We're coming in on Isaiah 53. So if you jump forward with me to our end of Isaiah 52, I want to take a little bit of a look at this servant, at this one who brings hope. <clears throat> who is he? What is he like? What does he do? What can we expect from him? So I'm going to read from Isaiah 52, verse 13 at the end into Isaiah 53. It says this, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. I'm like, oh, let's just pause there for a minute. We're going to go through bit by bit. Is that okay? So this servant of the Lord, who we know is God himself, because the Bible tells us that, but this servant of the Lord, he's going to be raised and lifted up. I'm like, hundreds of years, hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked on planet earth, Isaiah is telling us that there is one coming into the wilderness who will bring hope and he will be raised and lifted up. And Jesus was raised and lifted up onto the cross, just like Isaiah tells us. And then it says, he will be highly exalted well, after he was lifted up onto the cross, he was resurrected and raised up to the seat of heaven. Come on. This is Isaiah telling us about Jesus. It says, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. What is this talking about? 
This is talking about the cross. This is talking about the fact that Jesus was physically beaten, that his skin was ripped from his body as they whipped him, that he was nailed to the cross and his blood poured out. He was so disfigured and he was lifted up onto the cross. Verse 15, so he will sprinkle many nations. What's he going to sprinkle them with? His blood that cleanses us. He is the sacrifice that washes us with his blood, that washes our sins away. And kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Chapter 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Ah, let's pause there for a moment, right? The tender shoot. This has taken us back to Isaiah 11, where when the tree was cut down and the stump was left there, this was talking about the people of God chopped down, and then this shoot of new life would spring up where you thought life had been killed, where it had ended, where it had stopped. Suddenly some new life was going to come. This is telling us that he, this servant, he will be the new life. Where there is no life, where it looks like no life could spring up again, he will spring up and bring life. When it tells us that he was like a root out of dry ground, uh, there's a few things with this. Firstly, the dry ground, this is referring to Israel. Israel become this dried ground. They dried up. There was no life in them anymore. They become like all the other nations. But in the place where you would least expect it, the Messiah was going to come. Life was going to come. You see, you don't expect a shoot to come out of dry ground. You expect it to come out of fertile ground, out of moist ground, out of ground that has been watered. But where you did not expect it to come from, it would come from. Salvation would come. And I love this, right? Because yes, this is talking about how the Messiah has come from the line of Israel. But I think there's more to this as well. And as I was praying over this, I felt like this was a word for some of us in this place today. I think that some of us have got dry ground in our lives. There are areas of dry ground. There are struggles. There are issues. There are things that feel like the ground is cracking. Our hearts are dry. There's a loss of love and hope. There's things like that going on in our lives. And we think, we think that there's, that's it. That's done. We think that's done. But I want to tell you today that the Word of God tells me that Jesus springs up out of dry ground, that he brings life to where there is no life. And so if you're someone who is feeling like, yeah, Maybe I've not even thought about it like dry ground before, Matt, but now I am. I think that is an area of dry ground in my life. I want to tell you today that hope can, be, can, can, can come through that land, that Jesus can bring life where there is none. So sometimes when we start following Jesus, we think like, yeah, this is going to be great. Salvation, the joy of the Lord. And then we start following him and suddenly, some of you might have experienced this, things get harder. And it's because the Holy Spirit starts being at work in our lives and the dry ground in our lives start to crack and splits start to form in it. And we're like, oh, that hurts. Oh, don't touch that bit of my life, God. But God's like, no, no, you don't understand. It's cracking because the shoot is pushing up through and I'm bringing life to that part of your life. I'm bringing hope where there was no hope. I'm bringing joy where you've lost all joy. That's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus does. Let's keep reading. Isaiah 53. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Ah, oh, man. Isn't that like true in our world? We look around and all the, all the idols of the world are so bright and shiny. They're so loud and they call to us and they beckon to us. And yet we look at Jesus and we think, ah, oh, really? 
take up my cross and follow you. <laughs> like on the surface, it, you know, we talk about a man. I, I, just, just check this a second, right? We talk about a man that we claim is God. That sounds bonkers. That's bonkers. We talk about a man who was nailed to a cross and died a criminal's death. And we say that he brings hope and life. That's crazy. That's, we call him the king of all things, the one who will bring justice. But he died a criminal's death. That is absolutely bonkers. When you hold him up against the things of the world, he's got nothing to draw us to him. And there's probably some of us in, in this room where we're like, we're just like, yeah, even as a Christian, I've kind of lost my draw to Jesus and the things of the world are feeling shiny and they're drawing me and the, the way the world talks seems more attractive. But guys, Jesus is the one who when he died, he rose from the grave. He conquered death and there is hope. And, and compared to the things of this world, it might not look like something worth putting your life in. But he is worth giving your life to. He is worth giving your life to. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. That word esteem is an accounting word. It means we looked at Jesus and we added up the figures and he didn't add up to much. He didn't add up to much. And some of us are still doing that today. We, we kind of look at Jesus and we, we add him up and we go, ah, oh, I'll give him 45% of my heart and the other 55 I'm going to give to this. Guys, if you're doing that, let me encourage you today to give him everything, to give him everything. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. I want to land with just these few verses, okay? This is touchdown. Um, it's a long runway, but this is touchdown. <laughs> but uh, here's the thing, right? These few verses are incredible. <clears throat> he, he took up our pain. That language, took up, is lifted straight from Leviticus. Whoop, whoop. Favorite book of the Bible. Come on. Uh, Leviticus chapter 16, verse 22. Okay. The, the day of atonement, the day every year where, where Israel came together to have their sin dealt with, right in the middle of this chapter, it says that there are these two goats. Okay. There's a goat that gets sacrificed and there's the scapegoat. And uh, the scapegoat they, the priests laid their hands on him and they confessed all the sins of the nation of Israel over the scapegoat. I'm like, the Day of Atonement must have gone on for more than a day, right? I mean, if I'm just confessing my sins, we're going to be there for quite a while. This is a whole nation. But they, they laid their hands on this goat and they confessed the sins of the people on this goat. And, and, and the language is this, it says in, in, in chapter, 20, uh, chapter 16, verse 22, it says that the goat carried the sins of the people out into the wilderness. And that word carried is the same word that's used here to, to take up, to carry. And so actually what Isaiah is doing is he's borrowing this language so that we would think about Jesus like this. Jesus is the goat that's going to carry away all of the brokenness, all of the pain, all of the sin, all of, the, all of that stuff. He's going to carry it away far, far, far away. He has taken all of that upon himself and he's carrying it away. Um, oh, how incredible is that? We get to just say, yeah, Jesus, 
I reach out to you and, and I give my life to you. And he says, I'm going to take up all your pain. I'm going to take up all that stuff that leads to brokenness in your life. I'm going to carry it far, far, far away from you. What a God he is. What a God he is. Now, I, I want to really quickly just throw something in here for you. Um, you may have heard this. You may have not heard this. But some of you may come to hear this. And so I, I want to just equip you to understand this a little bit. Um, we call this... Uh, penal substitution, okay? This is the idea that Jesus, like the scapegoat, took our punishment in our place. He was substituted for us. This is, this is the, the teaching, okay? The theology, penal substitution. He went in and he took our place and he took our punishment upon himself. There are churches today that teach that this is not true, Okay, and I mean, I don't know how because I read the Bible and it's, it's all over the Bible. Um, but I, I need you guys to hear this. There are churches today that teach this is not true. They hold up this, this teaching of penal substitution and, and they tell you God would not do that. God's a loving God. And they call this divine or cosmic child abuse. That God the Father would send his son and punish him and torture him and kill him for other people. They call it divine or cosmic child abuse. And, and I just want, I want to tell you that if you ever come across that and someone starts telling you that your theology is wrong, you've understood the Bible wrong, you have not, okay? This is what the Bible teaches. They are misinterpreting what the Bible teaches. This is not what the Bible teaches. It does not teach divine child abuse. It does not teach cosmic child abuse. God is not abusing his son. How do I know this? Because we've already talked about this. Who is the servant? God himself. God himself. Who is the Son? God himself. You see, the Son isn't a separate, complete entity that goes off and does separate things. Jesus is God. You see that? God himself said, I'm going to become a human being, and then I'm going to take this punishment upon myself. Yes, it is my will to punish sin, to deal with it. We talked about all this last week. He wants to eradicate all of the evil in the world, and so he's putting it all upon one person so that it is dealt with, and that person is him. It's him. This is not divine child abuse. This is the most amazing act of grace that has ever been seen in the history of the world. That the creator became one of the creation and took the sin and shame and the punishment of the created beings upon himself and died in our place. He carried all of that to save us. Wow. That's what that is. That's who that is. So when it says he took our pain and our suffering, uh, what does that mean? Because I'm a Christian, and I confess before you now that sometimes I experience pain, and sometimes I experience suffering. <laughs> Anybody else? Great. All right. So, so what does it mean that God took our pain and suffering? Because that's, that's not my everyday experience. Sometimes I struggle. What it means is this. The pain and suffering are the results of sin. Do you remember last week we talked about the curse in Genesis 3? When we choose not to follow God and we choose to live another way, the curse of Genesis is spoken over us. And that curse is, hey, if you, if you don't choose life, and you don't choose joy, and you don't choose peace, and that's all over here, and you choose to walk this way, and you choose all these other glamorous things, hey, they come with pain and suffering. They, they come with brokenness. They come with shame. These things come with that. And if you choose to stand in that, this is the result of that. And Jesus says, but I love you. I love you. And I don't want you to live in that. 
And so I'm taking that. And what most of us don't realize is that the result of sin has an eternal consequence. The Bible tells us that sin leads to death. It's an eternal consequence. We just think we're so like modern Western Christians, aren't we? Everything's about now. It's about here. Give me right this minute. Lord, answer this prayer now. Like, but actually, do you know what? God's like, yeah, I want to be in your now. I want to be in the moment with you. But I want you to be aware that there's an eternity that you're going to live in. And I'm dealing with all of that that is going to shape your eternity. And so when it says he took up our pain and our suffering, that is true. He did. And what he did was he got nailed to the cross, which is a very, very, very physical thing upon a very, very physical planet Earth. And he got nailed to it. And as he was nailed to it, so was our sin. When we put our faith in him, our sin, our pain, our shame, our brokenness, it was nailed to the cross with him and it died with him. And you know, one day Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to burn up this world and all that has been nailed to it through the cross. And he's going to create the new heavens and the new earth. And we will live with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And, and, and Isaiah is pointing us forward to this stuff. It, Isaiah has all this future context in it, pointing us forward to Genesis 21, where in verse 4 it says that there will be no more sadness, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more uh, sin. This is the hope. And that hope will be fulfilled when he comes again and makes all things new. And that's what he's going to do. That's what he's going to do. And so many of the idols that we have in our world today, they like to promise us that they can make all things new now, right? Isn't that what they do? That's why we buy into them, because we want to be made new. We, we want that. But Jesus says, yeah, I'm making all things new for you. And that starts now, but is realized as you live into eternity. And there's an eternity where all things are new, where there is hope, where there is no more sadness, sorrow, suffering, sickness, or sin. We could, we could go through a whole load of stuff and I could pull that out for you, but we're running out of time. And um, I want us to, to just spend some time in the presence of the one who wants to do that, who wants to bring that about. So I, I, I want to just, as you jump off the plane, so to speak, I want to just read from Isaiah 60, verse 18. It says this, just so you know, I'm not making this stuff up, right? Like Isaiah is rooted in the future hope. It is rooted in the future hope. And it says this. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders. But you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of sorrow will end. Hope is coming. Hope is coming. That is the message to the people in the wilderness and that is the message to us. Guys, yes, God is interested in in what happens in the here and now. Yes, I believe that when it says that we are by his stripes, we are healed. I believe that we can experience physical healing in the here and now. And yet sometimes we don't always experience physical healing in the here and now. But that's because John, in his gospel, calls these healings, he calls them signs. He calls them signs. This was the first sign. This was the second sign. What do signs do? Signs point you to something that is coming. Signs point you to something that you are heading towards. You don't drive. Who goes on holiday to the Lake District? Anyone? 
Oh, okay, one or two of you, three of you. Great. Um, I've never been. I quite like to go. I look at pictures. I'm like, ooh, lovely. We should go there. Uh, but you don't, you don't start driving from Bristol and set out towards the Lake District. And you start driving and you get on the road and you hit the first sign that says Lake District, 96 miles. You don't pull over and say, let's get out here. Let's camp out here. Let's hang out with this sign. Let's, let's get, come on, let's get our food out and hang out, pitch our tent. You don't do that. It's 96 miles away. You get back in the car, or you don't even get out of the car. You go, hey, we're on, the right, we're on the right route. And you keep driving, and you pass the next sign, and you pass the next sign, and you pass the next sign, until you get to the sign that says, welcome to the Lake District. And you're like, we've made it. Sometimes we see healing around us, right? We see people physically healed. And, and I think as Christians, sometimes we can get a little bit grumpy about that. Why are they healed and I'm not? Some of us will experience physical healing in this life. And some of us will experience it when all things are made new, including our bodies, right? That's when we'll experience it. And when we see the sign, we shouldn't get out and kick the sign down because I'm not a sign. (laughs) We shouldn't get out and just camp around it and make the sign the thing. We should be like, boom, look at the sign. We're on the right track. Jesus is making all things new. And we want to step into that. We want to step into that. Um, That's the hope we have in him. We see snippets of it now. We see signs of it now. But it is coming. It is coming. And some of you, I've got your eyes so fixed on the sign or on the road or in the here and now or on the idol that you've been looking to that you've lost sight that there is an eternity. And I want to apologize if ever we preach here and it sounds like everything's about the now. Because I think in our churches, modern Christianity has made everything about the now. Kingdom of heaven now. Do I believe the kingdom of heaven breaks in now? Yes, I do. But do I believe the fullness of it is coming now? No, I don't. I believe that it is coming when Jesus comes again. And so I want to just say to you again, our hope is in heaven. Our hope is in the one who is seated on the throne of heaven. And he is coming again and he will establish his kingdom. And I want to encourage you, hold on to that. Keep pressing into that. Keep believing for that. And keep looking to him for that. Because when it all happens, that's where it's happening. Not in anything else. All these other things will fall away. All these other things are not worth our effort. He is the one who says, I have done it. And I am making it happen. Just put your trust in me. All these other idols say, you need to give us everything you've got. Everything you've got to make it happen, and they never deliver. Put your hope in Jesus. Emma, why don't you come? Why don't we stand together?